This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. We spend a lot of time on podcasts like this predicting the future in various ways. But as we do that, we know life is really unpredictable. And as the scripture says, we do not, uh, we do not know uh, the number of our days. And that's why it's a really important thing to have a will uh, to protect yourself and your family. Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to walk you through the entire process of creating a will in as little as 10 minutes. You don't have to have a law degree uh, to be able to walk through this, and that's why it's really helpful. So visit morect.com, that's M-O-R-C-T.com, will, that's morect.com slash will to get started today. Russell Moore, and this is a special edition of Christianity Today's Russell Moore Show, uh, dealing with the investigation, the report that came out uh, just uh, yesterday as I'm recording this, uh, into the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee and the treatment of uh, sexual abuse and sexual abuse survivors. This is something that uh, at at first glance might not seem relevant to those of you uh, who are not uh, Southern Baptist or not uh, around uh, Southern Baptist ministry. This has everything to do with everybody within uh, any kind of church in Christianity and really any kind of institution as well. There are layers to this wickedness um, that we all need to see and no one can uh, can simply turn away from it. So I'm glad to be joined today by Rachel Denhollander, who is uh, the leading advocate in the country on questions of sexual abuse and advocacy for sexual abuse survivors. She is uh, an attorney. She is the author of uh, the book, What is a Girl Worth?, uh, which uh, dealt uh, at least uh, in part with her own experience as a uh, gymnast uh, confronting these questions. And she has two children's books, uh, What is a Little Girl, or How Much is a Little Girl Worth and How Much is a Little Boy Worth, uh, dealing with uh, these questions as well at uh, at an age-appropriate level to help children to uh, to grapple with them as well. Rachel, thanks for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a weighty day. It is. It is. Uh, I'm. I'm wondering before we get started, as we're dealing with the revelations that are in this um, guidepost uh, investigation report about the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. For people who aren't familiar uh, with uh, sort of the the ongoing um, situation in the SBC. Uh, maybe they're they're not Southern Baptist, or they or, or they haven't paid attention to what's going on. Could you sum up what the investigation found? Oh goodness, um, it found. It's hard to do. It's a massive report. Yes, 
It, it is. It is. A, it is a massive report, um, and there's just so much to grieve and lament over in that report. Um, but to be honest, it found exactly what what those of us who have been immersed in this world were expecting to find, and frankly, already knew was there. It found a consistent pattern of uh, harassing and intimidating survivors and attempting to silence advocates. It found uh, a very concerted effort to resist sexual abuse reform. Um, it found a continued cover-up at times of sexual abuse cases uh, and a refusal to report uh, and allowing of predators to, to go from church to church without any effort being made to identify or to stop them. Um, it found uh, some some new allegations of abuse in leadership, which again, um, as much as I would like to say those things are stunning and shocking for those of us who have been immersed in this world, uh, it wasn't. And so it, while it while it is a gut-wrenching report to read, um, it does not unveil anything that we didn't know was there and that everybody else shouldn't have known was there. And to me, I think that is actually the most sobering part. We should have known, and in many cases, we did know and did nothing. What this report really does is put together uh, in one in one cohesive story what sexual abuse advocates and survivors have been saying literally for decades. Yes, and even uh, even for those of us who have lived uh, through uh, many of these uh, experiences behind the the scenes behind the veil, to see it in print and in black and white, uh, the sort of inhumanity of the kind of language that was being used uh, behind closed doors about survivors, about advocates, not to mention the not just the stonewalling and cover-ups, but the way that that was done with with such a inhumanity is the is the only word that that comes to mind to see that in in front of us. I'm wondering, Rachel, when you think about this uh, revelation about their they're keeping a list of uh, predators within churches and instructing people uh, not to uh, respond and just to, to keep that information there, even when people would call in and say, according to the report, my, uh, my child is, is, uh, is uh, being uh, harmed or, or I am being harmed to say, don't do anything about it. And the fact that over 700 people in ministry are in that, was that surprising to you? No, Dr. Moore, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Because these are the consistent patterns that we see across any institution that resists sexual abuse reform and treats survivors this way. You know, we tell our children all the time, actions speak louder than words. We quote Bible verses at our children, you will know them by their fruit. But we don't apply those very basic biblical principles to our own leaders. If we did, we would have expected everything that we saw in this report because the fruit of these leaders has been for decades when it comes to sexual abuse. The fruit has been to intimidate and harass survivors. The fruit has been to publicly badmouth them. The fruit has been to resist all reform and to do it in the name of Christ and to do it in the name of SBC polity. You don't get that fruit without a rotten tree. Mm -hmm. And we know that theologically and intellectually. We tell our children that we teach it in Sunday school, but we did not apply that to Southern Baptist leadership. And so we should not be surprised when we have peeled back the layers and found, in fact, a rotten tree. 
And when you're immersed in this world, there are a number of consistent patterns that emerge. When you see leadership refusing sexual abuse reform and treating survivors as if they are enemies, that is a warning sign that there's much more going on under the surface than you can see. And one of the things we typically find uh, is that the leadership knows of significantly more predators and have done nothing. We saw this in USA Gymnastics. They had an entire file cabinet that was filled with reports of sexually abusive coaches, ironically, one of whom was actually defended uh, and aided by SBC attorney Augie Boto. Um, we saw this uh, with Michigan State University file cabinets of reports against Larry and against Larry's boss of being a sexual predator. We saw this in the Catholic Church. Uh, investigators are repeatedly uncovering literally file cabinets uh, for reports against sexually abusive priests that were never acted on, that were shoved in a corner. Uh, survivors who reported and who were not responded to. So now I'm not surprised at all mm -hmm. to find that the Southern Baptist Convention has done the exact same thing because the patterns are so clear and so predictable. Um, and that's why I'm saying, you know, as staggering as this report is for those of us who are immersed in this world, who have been listening to survivors, there is nothing in this report, not a thing that surprised mm -hmm. any of us, mm -hmm. not a thing. When you think about uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, for instance, one of the things in this report is that a key figure in, um, in uh, a key whistleblower and an advocate within the Roman Catholic Church actually warned um, Southern Baptist officials uh, about what he had seen in the Roman Catholic Church and, and very, very well could be within Southern Baptist Convention churches and turns out to have, have indeed been that. Uh, I, I know this is asking you to sort of get into the minds of people, but one of the things that is very hard for me to understand is when you have people within the, the Catholic Church, within the SBC and other places who are talking so often about sexual immorality and about objective moral order and about uh, dealing with a, a decadent culture on the outside and, and seem to have really black and white sorts of understandings of what's uh, sin and what's not. What is the motive for, for people like that to when it comes to this, the abuse of power in, uh, in sexual uh, abuse and assault and violence, what is the motive to cover that up? I mean, what what is going on inside the mind and heart? There are a couple of things, again, that we typically see uh, and which individual falls into which category isn't something right. that I can say or speculate, but I can talk about the categories. One of the things that we do see is oftentimes when sexual abuse is minimized it's because of that individual himself has a sexual perversion. We do see that. That's not all the time. That's not every case. Um, but there are a couple of pretty consistent hallmarks. Uh, a lot of individuals who hold a sexual perversion tend to very much minimize sexual abuse, but have voyeuristic tendencies when it comes to engaging with either what they classify as sexual sin or with sexual abuse itself. And what I mean by that is something that we typically see uh, is leaders who require very detailed confessions of people under their authority uh, when those individuals have engaged in the level of sexual activity and also require a, a significant high level of detail when disclosures of sexual abuse come across their way. It's almost mm. a voyeuristic engagement with sexual abuse. We do have reports of that 
against certain leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, Paige Patterson being one of them. Um, and so we see some of those patterns quite clearly in leadership. Um, we see some red flags. Uh, we see this with Johnny Hunt uh, when Ravi Zacharias's sexual perversion and sexual predation and sexually abusive behavior uh, was unveiled. There were a number of people that expressed concern about Johnny Hunt's investment in Ravi's massage parlors where this abuse was taking place. Uh, and and some of the behavior of SBC leadership as relates to sexual abuse uh, and essentially raise that red flag of, look, if you have uh, a tight relationship with somebody who's a sexual predator and you've been involved uh, in the dynamics potentially where that predation occurred and you're part of an institution that is consistently minimizing sexual abuse, that may be a red flag, but you have individuals in leadership who are themselves abusers. So we do see some of those patterns. And the other thing that we have to grapple with is the actions are the fruit of ideas. Uh, and our ideas are what drive what we do. And so if we are not taking sexual abuse seriously, we have to start asking why. And I think that's a reality we have to grapple with. Everybody says that they are opposed to sexual mm-hmm. abuse. Everybody does. But when they don't behave that way, we have to at some point be able to say, You might be saying you oppose this thing, but you actually do not. It does not matter to you. You do not care about it. And I can tell you don't because I can watch what you do. And I think we see that very clearly when it comes to a significant number of SBC leadership. They pay lip service to, oh, yes, abuse is horrible. But they do not behave as if abuse is horrible. In fact, they behave the exact opposite. And so at some point in time, we have to call a spade a spade and say, actually, no, you don't Mm. care about this. You don't think it's really that bad. And if we, and then we've got to ask the question, if you don't think it's really that bad, why? What is the ideology that is driving you to not think sexual abuse is that big of a deal or causes that much damage or is that serious? And I think we have to start grappling with our theology on a number of levels. We have to start grappling with how we uh, understand uh, the differences between men and women and how we talk about women. Uh, There's a book that Sheila Gregory wrote called The Great Sex Rescue, uh, and she unveiled uh, and looked at what we are teaching in our top 10 marriage and sexuality books. And what she uncovered is what what many of us have been saying uh, for years, a question that exists completely outside of the question of male-only ordination. We're not talking about uh, whether women can be pastors here. I know that's the automatic response that people tend to jump to, but that's Mm -hmm. not what we're talking about. Those are two separate issues. But what we do see, especially in more conservative evangelical circles, is a viewpoint of women that views women primarily by their sexuality. Either they are dangerous to a godly man, a man because of their sexuality, or they're means to sexual fulfillment. Marry lest you burn with lust. And when you have distilled an entire gender down to their identity as a sexual being, what you have done is adopted a pornographic mm-hmm. view of womanhood. You have adopted the view that women are sexual beings who exist either as dangers or as means to an end. And when that's how you counsel men as to what manhood and womanhood means, when that's what you teach uh, about what the marriage relationship should look like, when your understanding of sexuality is male-oriented only, rather than that sexuality is a gift for both genders that is to be mutually enjoyed, when that is your viewpoint of womanhood and you've defined womanhood by their status as submissive and by their identity as a sexual being, you have adopted a pornographic view of womanhood and it should be no surprise to us that women then become either treated as sexual objects or it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal to anybody Mm -hmm. when they are. 
Our ideas drive our actions, and we have to start grappling with the ideas that are behind the actions we've been seeing. And isn't it true also uh, in that in that same vein that there there are there are a couple of ways to to maintain an injustice. One of one of those ways is to say, well, this isn't that bad, or or we're good people, and so we wouldn't do that. But the other is to say, well, everybody's this bad. And so this is just the way that men are. And uh, therefore you have to, um, I mean, this, this is what almost always happens when one of these situations is being covered up is someone is saying, well, we're all sinners. Uh, everybody needs a second chance. Remember David with Bathsheba. And so there's this sense of almost um, a lack of accountability because a lack of an expectation that men can do anything, anything other than be driven by predatory impulses. Don't we see that as well wrapped up with that same, um, that same sort of twisted idea of men and women? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and again, this is something Sheila discusses quite a bit in her book, The Great Sex Rescue, and that I've discussed at length, uh, is again, when you define sexuality in a way that is not what the Bible teaches, and in fact, is often the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches sexuality is, when you define manhood and womanhood by those terms, uh, when you categorize abusive behavior and sexually perverted behavior as, quote, every man's battle, what you have done is sent the message that uh, men, you can't be any different. This is part of who you are. In fact, this is part of what it mm. means to be a man. To, to struggle with sexually abusive behavior is part of what it means to be a man. And if you do struggle that way, that's well, that's because uh, of, of what women are. Uh, and we blame shift the, the lust and the struggles that men have onto women. When you have done that, you have created a system of mm. sin leveling. Uh, which ignores the very real consequences and depth of damage that arises from different types of sin. Uh, and you have created a, an understanding of what it means to be a man uh, that is rooted in aggressiveness uh, and, and categorizes abhorrent sexual behavior as just normal. And again, so it should be a very little surprise to us when men act on those things or don't seem that disturbed, aren't that disturbed, when other men mm. act on those things. Uh, and that also helps explain why they don't speak up. You know, there was a, a research study that was done uh, just a few years ago. I think it was actually done by Lifeway. Uh, but it was it asked the question of how many pastors knew other pastors who had engaged in sexually inappropriate behavior. And it didn't differentiate between abusive behavior and inappropriate behavior. Uh, but we know statistically that a significant number of sexually inappropriate behavior is done between pastor and congregant, which involves a power dynamic and abusive authority, typically at minimum. Um, and the overwhelming majority of pastors raised their hand and answered that question said, oh yeah, I know other pastors who have engaged in sexually inappropriate behavior. Imagine if all of those pastors mm. had told the truth about the pastors that they knew that had engaged in sexually inappropriate behavior, how many abusers would we have identified? And how many disqualified pastors would we have identified? But they didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Because it didn't matter that much. It didn't seem like that big of a deal because of how we understand our theology of sexuality, how we understand our theology of manhood and womanhood, and we are reaping the fruits of our theological positions. And it's not just that dynamic, um, but that is a very significant one that we're going to have to grapple with and, and stop tying it to the question of male-only ordination, uh, where we're unable to talk about these realities without the immediate battle cry being raised of, oh, you want liberal feminism right. in the church. 
and they're different issues and we should see a problem. If we can't talk about the sexual abuse of women, of women without somebody saying, oh, that's yeah. feminism, uh, then we have a significant problem in how we understand and define our term. Yes, that's right. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. You know, one of the things uh, when I was meeting with the uh, guidepost uh, investigators, the question that I I sat here and I couldn't answer uh, was at the end when they said, what recommendations would you have uh, for the SBC for for structural uh, reforms? And I said, I don't know, because before in priority, there's a cultural uh, change that, that this is a cultural problem, a theological cultural problem that has to have structural um, structural but but the structural reforms themselves can't do it. and And I think in this sort of situation, what people are looking for is what are the what are the things that we can immediately vote to do and that will fix the problem and we can move on. Um, so I don't know uh, what at this point the SBC is to to do um, other than to to go to work in trying to repair the damage uh, as much as they can. But what what would you advise? It is a very complex question. And you're right. The structure is not going to fix this problem. It is going to take a massive cultural shift. Um but some of the implementation of that, of course, will have to come through specific means of reform. Mm -hmm. uh, and the task force has put out uh, an introductory letter that suggests a, le a, a significant level of reform to take place. And there will be formal motions that accompany that that will be released between now and Anaheim that will give us something concrete to start with. Uh, but there are multiple layers to this. Uh, the first, of course, is just education. Uh, and we've got to do a much, much better job educating our pastors in particular uh, on what abuse is, what abusive dynamics look like, how to identify it, and what to do when you see it. Um, you know, we we had, I, I meet with pastors all the time. I have met with uh, the, the leaders of almost all of the state task forces uh, within the SBC. And a consistent theme that comes out from all of them is we're not equipped as pastors to deal with this. We get taught how to run a corporation to an extent. We get taught how to write uh, a plan, a business plan, uh, we're taught how to run uh, elders meetings. We're not taught anything about abuse. Mm -hmm. And the frank reality is the vast majority, if, if we believe that pastors really are shepherds, and that's what the SBC says, if pastors are shepherds, then you have to be connected to your flock and you have to know what's going on in your flock 
And you have to be equipped to identify uh, and to walk alongside what your flock is suffering through. And here's the reality. In your congregation, in any given pastor's congregation, on average, 25% of women have experienced sexual abuse and 30% of them have experienced domestic violence, which often has significant crossover with sexual abuse. And one in six men have experienced sexual abuse. But we do not prioritize equipping our pastors as if 25% of the, of the congregants they'll be in contact with have experienced abuse. Mm. But pastors are often sought for help in crisis. They're, they're sought for help with counseling sin issues. They're sought for help with counseling marriage and premarital issues. Uh, they're sought for help when someone has reached the end of themselves. But what we haven't really grappled with is so much of the time, not all the time, but so much of the time behind uh, sinful coping mechanisms or sinful patterns is often trauma and coping mechanisms that have developed in response to that trauma. Mm. Oftentimes in unhealthy marriages, it is either one of the spouses themselves who are abusive or one or both spouses acting out of unhealed trauma and sinful or unhealthy coping mechanisms that have developed. When you are doing premarital counseling and you're preparing for marriage, oftentimes, statistically, at least a quarter of those marriage, of those couples that you're going to be counseling have trauma in their background that is going to have an impact on how they engage with each other when they become one. So much of what, the, what pastors have to deal with on a daily basis and what they're sought for, for help, involves sexual abuse or trauma. And they are 100% unequipped to identify it or to know what to do with it when they see it. Uh, and so oftentimes the counseling that happens in those church contexts either doesn't catch a problem that they should have seen or actually compounds the problem that's already there through a lack of inexperienced counsel. Mm. Uh, and so we've got to start looking at how we're training our pastors. Uh, and that's gonna that's a discussion that's got to happen at the seminary level. You know, when I can have every state task force leader telling me, we don't have any Christian trauma counselors that we can send our congregation to. We've got to start mm-hmm. asking what's happening in our seminary counseling programs. Mm-hmm. You have six flagship seminaries. I believe all of them have counseling programs. Mm-hmm. And yet every pastor I've been in contact with, every state task force leader has told me, we don't have trauma counselors we can send our congregants to. That shouldn't be a problem in a denomination with six seminaries. So something's wrong mm-hmm. in our counseling programs. We've got to grapple with that. Uh, we've got to reckon with how we understand principles of cooperation. Uh, you know, Southern Baptists uh, hold to convictionally the theology of church autonomy. Uh, and that's not at odds with being able to say our autonomy has limits or our cooperation has limits. Mm-hmm. Southern Baptists already do that. Yes. Um, but they haven't cared enough about sexual abuse to say our cooperation has limits when it comes to sexual abuse. And so we've got to grapple with that reality. What does it mean to be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist? And where are we going to draw that line? Uh, Because that's going to be one of the greater mechanisms of being able to catch abusive pastors or to be able to say to churches that are covering up or mishandling abuse chronically uh, that we we cannot be in fellowship with you when you're treating God's children this way. Um, We've got to look at some of those, those core theologies and grapple with the fact that leaders in the SBC have lied repeatedly about what those theologies do and don't allow, mm-hmm. and that they have been allowed to lie mm-hmm. to the convention mm-hmm. about what those theologies do and don't allow, and then start getting help figuring out what can really be done. 
Uh, and I think that's a significant thing that came out of this report is a lack of proactivity, getting help, figuring out what could be done. Even apart from the autonomy question, I, I'm thinking about um, any sort of uh, denomination or, or Christian ministry or structure out there, no matter what their polity is. Do you think, I mean, one of the, the pieces of conversation that has been uh, at the heart of this um, of, of this debate for a long time is that of a, a database that would prevent um, that would prevent the situation that we see so often of, of an abuser is in a church, people know about it, and that person is just simply allowed to retire or God's called me somewhere else and just move on to another place with other, uh, other people to prey upon. Uh, is, in your opinion, is there a way to do a database that would include uh, not just people who've been convicted of crimes, but people who have been uh, credibly, uh, credibly accused of, of these sorts of crimes. Is, is that possible? Oh, absolutely. It is now and it always has been, which again is what survivors and advocates have been saying for decades. It's possible with an SBC polity. It's consistent with SBC polity. Uh, and what we now know uh, is that Augie Bodo and, and George, Jim Gunther, they, they knew that. Uh, because they had a staffer who wrote a memorandum showing how it was possible with an SBC polity. And then they buried that memorandum and suggested to the staffer that uh, perhaps they were too invested in this and they needed to step away. Uh, but advocates have been, have been saying for decades that SBC polity does not preclude a database. It never did. Uh, and in terms of whether or not you have to be convicted to go on that database, the standard of credibly accused and preponderance of the evidence uh, as as determined by a qualified third party, uh, so somebody who who really has the skill uh, as an assessor to look into to make an inquiry into that allegation of abuse, uh, and to be able to to truly have due process before going on that list. Yes, that's possible. It's being done all over. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I think this is one of the things that Southern Baptists have to grapple with: is there was no proactivity at all in getting any kind of outside help to ask the question, can we actually do this? The answer is yes, you can. And it's being done all over the place. Uh, other denominations have this type of database. The Catholic Church has this type of database and it's preponderance of the evidence standard and it's credibly accused. Uh, it is not simply those who have been criminally convicted because we know that the vast, vast majority of predators are not going to be criminally convicted. Out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, on average, only five to six result in criminal conviction and jail time. Mm. Uh, and so if we are relying on criminal conviction to tell us who is a sexual abuser, you're going to miss the vast, vast majority of abusers. And we know that we've known this literally again for decades. Mm -hmm. That's why other denominations and other entities consistently have lists of banned coaches uh, or priests who are credibly accused. And those databases are not predicated on criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. They're predicated on credibly accused as determined by preponderance of the evidence. And typically those databases outsource the factual inquiry portion of that because then that helps put a liability shield. Uh, the question of have you done a proper investigation? You've hired a firm who's credible, who's, uh, who's credible to do that kind of assessment, uh, who understands uh, how to weigh credibility of witnesses and victims and, and perpetrators, who understands how what questions to ask and how to weigh evidence. Uh, and so you typically outsource the inquiry portion of that and you use the preponderance of the evidence standard. This is done all the time. It's done all the time. 
in other corporations, in other denominations, in other institutions. There was never any reason why that could not be done in the Southern Baptist Convention, except that SBC's legal counsel was lying to the convention for decades, and nobody else bothered to check. Mm. You know, I know you uh, probably, as uh, Maria and I have, um, we, we've been hearing from sexual abuse survivors that we know and love uh, all all uh, weekend. Yes, this this week is a really, really difficult time for a number of reasons for survivors. And one of those is just the re-traumatizing of, um, uh, of looking at this, uh, this again and being confronted with it again. Uh, and part of it is, is looking at some of the, uh, the, the ways that specific survivors were talked about uh, being able to see that it is a, it is a difficult, tough time for a lot of survivors. What counsel would you give for people who love a survivor of church sexual abuse about how to care for that person? Sit with them in the grief and exhibit holy anger against what has come out. Just sit with them in the grief. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that all of us have to do uh, is grapple with what we could have done better. Uh, Because the reality is that we, um, we know now and we've known for a long time that abusers flourish in communities that don't treat abuse like it's that big of a deal. And that how we message on the topic of sexual abuse is the biggest indicator to whether or not a survivor will feel safe disclosing, is safe disclosing, and whether or not a predator will feel safe targeting our institution. Mm. The Southern Baptist Convention has not done well messaging on the issue of sexual abuse. We can see in this report that a handful of very corrupt men were able to manipulate and control an entire executive committee and an entire denomination, in part because certain members of that executive committee were part of the problem. They were part of the evil and the corruption and the minimizing. But also because those who weren't, weren't proactive in seeking what they could do better and in listening to what was being said. The lie that was repeatedly given that the SBC couldn't do a database and couldn't do anything about sexual abuse because of SBC policy, that was a lie. It was a demonstrable lie. Had anybody in the convention listened to any outside expert at any point in time, but nobody did. And it was a demonstrable lie. Had anybody in leadership gone to anyone else and said, hey, this is what we're dealing with. We want to be able to do something about this problem. Can you come and look at our incorporating documents and our bylaws and our structure? And can you help us see if there's a way to get here that's consistent with our convictions? Nobody did that. Why did nobody do that? Because nobody cared enough to do that. If I want to learn something or I want to fix a problem, I go and find somebody that can teach me that thing. I go find an expert that I can learn from to help fix that problem. And at every point in time, every leader in the Southern Baptist Convention had the ability to do that, to go to somebody outside the convention who is an expert in these dynamics, who understands that databases and proactivity and inquiries on sexual abuse can be done consistent with polity and theology, and in fact, are done all the time. And it doesn't increase your liability 
and it doesn't run a legal risk and there are processes and standards, anybody, any leader in the convention could have found those answers at any point in time if they had wanted to look. They didn't. And we have got to grapple with that. Leadership has got to grapple with that. A handful of corrupt men commandeered this entire convention and the entire executive committee, not because the vast majority of people in the convention or on the executive committee were themselves corrupt individuals, but because they were not proactive in getting help. And that's something that comes out in this report. You know, you can look at the credentialing committee audit and the, the response of the credentialing committee members has been, we had no trauma training. There were no processes and standards. Nobody helped us understand what an inquiry could or couldn't look like. Uh, and that's true. They didn't. They didn't have any of those things. But they also didn't try to get them. And not only did they not try to get them, when those things were offered repeatedly, they were rejected. And you see this with the executive committee. Krista Brown, the primary uh, survivor who has led this movement and has been begging for a database for decades, is herself an attorney. Mm -hmm. She knows what she's talking about. She's always known what she's talking mm -hmm. about. So when you have an attorney who's standing literally outside your convention doors and saying, this is a step that could be taken. This is a step that other denominations have taken. It is not opposed to your polity. It's not opposed to your theology. There are standards and processes in place. And you've got a qualified expert who's telling you those things and you literally walk past them and shut the door on them. Mm. That's something every single messenger has got to grapple with. That's a reality every single SBC leader has to grapple with. Every single executive committee leader has to grapple with. What about the pastor of a small church, maybe a bivocational pastor, who's saying, I'm trying to figure out how to do this well now. Where should I go for, uh, for resources to, to figure out how to how to be uh, trauma-informed and how to make sure that, that uh, the same dynamics aren't taking place in this, uh, in this local church? So there's a couple of things that are available right now that can be obtained. Uh, the SBC's Caring Well curriculum is something I was a part of and 11 other very qualified, highly qualified experts were a part of. Uh, and it's, it gives a, a bird's eye view of the complexity of these issues and also what to do. And then it links to a significant number of additional resources. That Caring Well program has uh, a free set of videos. They're only about 20 minutes long each. And it has a book that is a transcript of all of the information in there. Uh, there's a PDF download. Those things are available for free. The videos in the PDF download are available for free. That's something any pastor can do and can go through with his church and can go through with his leadership. And it doesn't cost a penny. Um, but we do have to start asking, how do we better resource these small faithful pastors who want to do things well and have been at the mercy uh, really of corrupt leadership? And that's going to take action on the messenger's part and on the leadership part to start producing those resources. And, you know, again, we have six flagship seminaries in the SBC. None of them, not one, has done a conference on sexual abuse. None of them has done even so much as a weekend seminar to say, hey, pastors, all of you in our, in our seminaries here who are all training to be missionaries and pastors, we're going to take some proactive steps to equip you. None of them have done that. None of them have platformed expert voices in this arena. In fact, several of those seminaries have really denigrated a lot of the expert voices in this arena. The things that I have heard said about Diane Langberg, 
mm-hmm. about myself, about several of the members on that Caring Well team by some of uh, our seminary professors has been, has been heartbreaking because it has kept their own pastors and their own students from some of the best resources out there on Christian trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. It's up to our leaders to begin platforming the right voices and taking proactive steps to help those faithful pastors who desperately need help begin to have the resources that they need and to know who to look to to get those resources. Not only has that not been done in the SBC, but much of the time, those types of things have actually been turned on their head and pastors have been pushed away from the very voices that should have been able to help them. And so I think, again, that's something that leadership is going to have to really, really grapple with. How do we start equipping and resourcing our seminary students, our missionaries, and those faithful pastors who don't have big budgets and big churches, but want to do the right thing? How do we start supporting them with our cooperative program dollars and with our resources and our infrastructure? And those things are there. The mechanisms for doing it are there, but it has to be a priority. Mm. Rachel Den Hollander, author of What is a Girl Worth? Thank you, Rachel, not only for your tireless and effective advocacy, but uh, also for being with us today. Thank you so much for having the conversation. Listeners, uh, you can click on the cover art and uh, and find other resources for you, in- including some of the uh, some of the ones that Rachel mentioned uh, today. Uh, for pastors or leaders or church members who are trying to figure out how to do this uh, well. It's a heavy, heavy week, and I'm grateful for Rachel being here. This is a special edition of The Russell Moore Show, and this is Russell The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb, Pam Vodanova, and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes.